a Podcast One production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> such a pleasure in this episode to be talking to Elizabeth Proust. Uh, Elizabeth, a business executive of many decades, uh, a board director, and of course, the chair of the AICD, uh, the Australian Institute of Company Directors. I've long admired Elizabeth. I think she's an outstanding role model, plays a very straight bat, um, has been one of the people who's commented for many, many years about the need for more women. Uh, in the workplace and in leadership. She comes across as a leader of such gravitas and, you know, as a really kind of serious and thoughtful person. And she also does that thing where she has gold chip business experience, but she also has such social justice credentials and concerns, particularly through her leadership of the uh, Truth and Justice Commission with the Catholic Church. I mean, I just take my hat off to Elizabeth Browse. What a role model. take you back, in fact, to when you were growing up, because you were the eldest of nine children, which uh, definitely sounds unusual these days and must have been character forming. I wonder what were the things that you you took from that experience? Well, firstly, I need to have one myself. (laughs) (laughs) And the nine have only produced 13. So that probably tells you that it was an interesting experience rather than one we wanted to repeat. I think that as the eldest, you took on responsibilities that... uh, you know, I probably fled from when I turned 18 and left Wollongong and moved to Melbourne. Um, but I think that it is character forming. You learnt the, at least in our family, the benefit of hard work, uh, of the importance of education. So I have almost no domestic skills even today because mum was determined that we would get the best education. Mm-hmm. And that meant studying and reading rather than cooking and uh, being terribly responsible for the for the other kids. And she wasn't in the paid workforce. Yeah. So she was there all the time. She would, after a drink or two, say to people in her later life, uh, if she had away again, she'd only have one child, which didn't much endear her to the other eight. <laughs> you would have been it. Would have been me. <laughs> I remember my mother being appalled that I did a touch typing course when I was in high school because she was terrified I'd be a secretary, which is what she done, and she wanted different things for me. My mother said to me it was the worst piece of advice I've ever received, but she thought it was a really good piece at the time. She said, whatever you do, don't learn how to type, <laughs> for exactly the same reason that she thought... I'd end up a typist. And of course, what then happened? Everybody from the CEO down had to know how to type and I'm still doing it like, you know, two-fingered. But yes, I think the generation of our mothers were very determined that their daughters in particular would have different lives. They were. And mum was horrified when I was married at 21 and had my daughter at 22 because she thought the cycle might start all over again. And that wasn't what she'd made the sacrifices for. But yes, that generation... Uh, women who were in their 80s and 90s now, who mostly weren't in the paid workforce and uh, probably at least partly resented the fact that they were at home all the time with a very restrained life, wanted something better for their daughters in particular. Yeah, bigger lives for them. You Obviously, your mother is a role model for you, someone that um, stood out. But when you were in high school, did you have ambitions? Were, were there role models in your education as well as at home? When I went to high school uh, on the south coast, Wollongong, with uh, all of my teachers except for the last two years were Good Samaritan nuns, I didn't want to be a teacher, but 
they were strong role models. It was uh, interesting because their ambition for us was to beat the Christian Brothers boys academically. But at the same time, we were meant to be mothers. And so they didn't quite reconcile that. We worked it out for ourselves, but they were very ambitious for us in terms of our education. And the idea that you wouldn't complete year 12 was an alien concept to them. And in a sense, they'd given up other lives that they might have had for the girls they taught. It's interesting to me because both of you come out of Catholic background and Catholic schools and were taught by nuns, but I didn't. I came out of a secular background and went to a state school and um, the teachers were just, you know, teachers. And it's never struck me before until you were just talking then that, in fact, the fact that these women were single women without family responsibilities does sort of change the options available that you can see in front of you. Very few of our teachers, unless they were young, were unmarried. And the ones that were, we all felt a bit sorry for. Isn't that terrible? No, but that, that contradiction yeah. is an interesting one. It is. It is. Yeah. And also they had more time. They didn't have families to go home to. They lived on the premises, if you like. And I remember my teacher from grade six in Balmain, she kept me back after school to do some extra work so I'd win a bursary because money was important to my family. So she would give me an hour, an hour and a half's tuition at the end of each day so I'd win a state bursary. I don't think they exist anymore that paid all of my fees through high school. And today you wouldn't expect teachers to do that. If you wanted tuition for your child, you'd find somebody and pay them. And this this was all unpaid, which my parents couldn't have afforded. You're sort of painting the picture of a mother at home who wanted different things for her daughters and nuns in the convent and at school who also wanted different things for the girls that they were teaching. And I think they wanted better lives for us. They, I think, at least not mum, but the nuns would have thought that we'd be largely wives and mothers at home, better educated and the like, but not in the paid workforce mm. or, or not much in the paid workforce. Yeah. Now, you ended up, let, let's let's move into your career, which is absolutely fascinating. I noticed you um, started off after graduating in public affairs at BP Australia, but then you ended up going and working with John Kane in 1982 in the Victorian public sector. So tell us about that and what sort of led you to do that because you had a stellar career in the public side. I was working for John Kane pro bono right. uh, when I was at university. So I started my degree at Sydney University, got married, moved to Melbourne, finished my first degree at La Trobe. And La Trobe was in the electorate called Bandura. And John Kane became the member for Bandura in, if my memory is correct, in the mid-70s. And hard to believe now, but in those days, state members of parliament had one staff member and that was their receptionist secretary. And John was the shadow attorney general and the shadow planning minister by that stage, I'd finished my first degree and I was doing law and so I started to work with him. My husband was in Labor Lawyers, knew John from that and so I got to know him and asked me to do some pro bono work for him. So I wrote his speeches, researched some issues. Um, I went into BP. I think BP was interested in me because I had that yeah. political knowledge and I think they saw after 27 years in Victoria that there would be a change of government. We'd had the Henry Balti era. Um, and after 27 years, the government was a little brain dead and social issues were stagnant at best. And so BP saw the change coming and hired me to do government and public affairs. Mm. And when John became Premier in 82, he asked me 
to join his staff on secondment from BP. Oh, I see. How old were you then? Uh, when I joined his staff, I was 32. Right. So mm. you're quite young to be in that, uh, you know, powerful position, really. I was first... I was fortunately I wasn't his original uh, chief of staff. We had somebody who'd been in the Commonwealth Public Service, and I think in what's now DFAT, as his chief of staff. Uh, after two years, he moved on to another role, and I became chief of staff. So I had a two-year apprentice uh, under uh, Alan Oxley, and that was that was a good uh, learning ground. But um, most of us were in our thirties, and when I see today look back and they're even younger in their 20s. I think there's an, a, a reason that politicians need some grey hairs around them as well as some youth and in, enthusiasm. And and John Cain and his ministers had a blend of, of both and I think that helps. Mm-hmm. You ended up at, at some point, you were Chief Executive of City of Melbourne and I know I've spoken to you before about whether you're considered a, a local in Melbourne after having spent an awfully long time there, but of course originally being from New South Wales. Um, still a bit, a bit of a sort of a double identity there for you? No, it's no. A, a local by now, although when I won that job in 1990, I'd been there, I think it was uh, 20-something years no, it can't have been that long. It must have been um, eighteen years. Um, it was Sydney. Sydney person wins top Melbourne job was the <laughs> was the headline. Uh, today, I'm regarded as from Melbourne, and since I moved there in '72, and apart from some time in London, I think that's probably fair. I think I, so. I, I am delighted. It said Sydney person, mm-hmm. not Sydney mother of one. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say, I won't name the journalist because he's very senior today. But he did ask me at the initial interview, "How would I do this job?" Mm and get dinner on the table each night. Ah, that's a question that just never goes away, (laughs) which actually I wanted to ask you about. So, of course, you moved from the public sector. Now, I I think I first came, um, or we would have spoken when you were working with ANZ, in fact, running a SAND at the finance um, division. Um, And I do remember you were wonderful and I would go to you quite regularly for some comments about some of the barriers women faced in the business world. And it was still very hard to get women to speak on the record, Mm. which I completely understood. Um, And I do have this very strong memory, and I've quoted this so many times, you said to me, Catherine, I'm not only the only woman around the table at that senior executive meeting at ANZ, I'm the only one with a partner in paid work. I wonder if you think, has that dynamic shifted as much as you hoped? I think it has a bit. Mm. I don't think it's a lot. I think uh, if you look at the tops of our organisations, there's often an entirely rational decision if somebody's earning seven figures for the partner, usually female, to decide not to work. And uh, as I sat around the management board table at uh, at ANZ, I was the only one and uh, Alison Watkins subsequently joined, but uh, Alison's partner had made the decision to look after the children. And so uh, there, I was in the position of having a partner who juggled. We did, weren't juggling our daughter by then, but you know, juggling careers. And one of the problems I think that causes is because in your large organisation, almost everybody else juggles, sick children, elderly parents and the like. And if they're, if they're in a relationship, two of them juggle. At the top of the organisation, only one juggles and one's got somebody at home to look after everything else. Mm. It's a different dynamic. Mm. Does that lead to a lack of empathy and understanding about the actual 
struggles that most ordinary people have. And is that one of the reasons it seemed so hard to get any kind of, I have a particular dislike of the phrase work-life balance because I think, you know, it's not like work is separate from life. Mm. It's part of life. But we've almost, we've almost glorified work as, as, as almost super life. And the most important thing. And the most important thing. And do you think that's because of the nature of the sorts of people for whom it's easier to end up in those big jobs? I think it is. They've they've got people taking them all the way there, including their their, their spouse. And I think they lose touch with what it's like to live on a minimum wage, what it's like to live on a, a pension. And they lose touch with with the juggling. One of the people I admired in ANZ, she's now chairing Boral and chairing uh, Chief Executive Women, Catherine Fagg. She was there when I was there and she had a rule, no meetings after five o'clock. And she enforced that on herself and on her people and that was, I think, a very important signal. Not, I'm a clock watcher, I go home, but I understand you've got children to pick up from school, you've got sports days, I'm going to be flexible about this and put a few rules in place. And I think even today, not enough people do that. It's not rocket science, is it? It's I mean, not. and it, it does seem to me, um, I could sound slightly weary here, that we've been talking <laughs> about some of the same interventions, if you like, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting in a, at a time when business talks constantly about innovation and disruption, that we're so incredibly traditional about the way the way we work, the way we structure jobs. It's um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? And I know with um, your work at AICT too, you've been you've been tracking how many women are getting onto those AXX two hundred boards, and it has gone up, and it's fantastic to see. I think the latest figure is twenty eight point five percent, not quite the thirty that you were hoping for. But um, what do you think we need to crack that? Do we need to go to the quotas idea? Having worked about half my career in government, I'm always wary about unintended consequences of government legislation. Norway has 40% and it's mandated. The I understand an issue with that has been that women have been moved out of executive life mm. too early. So the, the fact that you don't reach 40% means you get delisted. So yeah. everybody therefore has reached 40%. But executive ranks are pretty slim of women. And my view as a director is where the culture is created is in the executive in the executive ranks and you need women there yeah. and i think that's problematic if you take women out too soon mm-hmm. and so i think that we need to keep up the advocacy the mentoring of women the AICD gives scholarships to enable women to do the company directors course so that we've got a, a ever expanding pool of women who can take on these uh, these courses, uh, these these roles. But one of the problems is it's twenty eight point five percent at the ASX two hundred level, as you say. But at the ASX two hundred and one and below, it's fifteen point eight. Mm. And that's a bit counterintuitive because you think that the smaller boards would give a not, an unexperienced, inexperienced, rather woman a chance. But it's the the, the well known chairs of companies who are taking the chances and promoting women and mo- mentoring them and not the smaller companies. Do you think it's because they're much more under examination? You know, they, yeah. they are prominent, therefore they, they can't hide, whereas some of the perhaps smaller companies are not so obvious in their lack. I think it's a couple of reasons. I think some of the chairs definitely get it and have been on this journey before it became a popular one. I think that, that 
now that there's only three of the 200 companies without any women on their boards and journalists have played a very important role over the last few years in ringing up the chairs of those companies and saying, can we help you find a woman? Is there a reason you don't have any women on your board? And their shareholders have asked them really awkward questions about that. So I think that's all helped. I think at the lower end of the ASX, the boards are smaller. They've often been started by four friends, four mates, uh, put their own equity in, not much diversity around the board table and a real reluctance to change that. Mm. And uh, I think probably a lack of understanding of what diversity and here I'm thinking diversity beyond gender Mm. can bring to their business. Mm -hmm. Almost a resistance, in fact. There is. I remember, Elizabeth, um, you said at one stage you were talking about the number of ASX 200 companies that had no women on boards, which has dwindled. It's not many now. But uh, someone said to you, what can we do about that? And you said, well, go and ring up your superannuation fund and tell them you no longer want your money invested in them, Um, which was a really interesting suggestion. Um, Is there more activity, do you think, from women? Are are we seeing a change? It's the Me Too era. We've seen a very interesting sort of coalescence of women online, certainly. Um, Is there something happening? Are women sort of stepping up together now? When... Flight Centre had no women on their boards. There was certainly a female backlash where we heard that women were going into Flight Centre offices and saying, I was going to book a holiday with you, but I hear you've got no women on your board, so I'm going somewhere else. I don't think it was a great campaign in the sense of numbers, but it had an impact. I think that uh, women are more savvy now about the places they put their superannuation, where they spend their money generally, and I think these things can make a difference. And if you think about it, women are still the biggest um, purchases of food and you know, almost anything you can think 80% of. 80% of purchases. Yes. Right? And so what does an all-male board of a retailer, for example, think it's bringing to the mix to have no woman on the board? It's just, it makes no business sense. And, and I think that's the issue. There's another pressure I think that started to happen too, and it is, you mentioned Me Too. I think it's as a result of Me Too. I think that um, the Me Too movement has actually changed conversations, particularly at board level, about what's going on in our company, how how exposed to this kind of thing are we. Uh, we may not have our ear to the ground. We do need to have more women, both in senior positions in the executive and also on the board, to break down blokey cultures if one has developed, but also to be um, able to tell the board what's going on before it suddenly, you know, there's lawyers at the door. I think it's the Me Too movement, but I think it's also in particular the Royal Commission into Financial Services, where night after night we watched on television these stories of people who've mm-hmm. lost their livelihoods as a result of whatever action the banks have taken or failed to take. And I think not just financial services boards, but all boards are asking, what are we missing? What are we not seeing in the organisation? Mm-hmm. And I think people are having quite different conversations around the board table. And the risk is that every board will get every minute complaint and problem and then you might not see the big picture for, you know, the, 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 all of the data that gets thrown at you. So it, it requires some judgment. But I think there are now quite different conversations going on. 
Do you think uh, one of the things that I found earlier in 2018 when uh, AMP was in the firing line and the, the revelations from the Royal Commission were coming thick and fast and the chair at the time, Catherine Brenner, um, eventually stood aside, there was some incredibly uh, unpleasant coverage about her in particular. And a couple uh, of the female board members as well as I recall. Yeah, and mm. it, it was really quite overt. And I must admit, even though I like to think, oh, I've been around this space, nothing surprises me, I was quite surprised at how overt those very old-fashioned attitudes from men, uh, very powerful men was. Did that surprise you? It did. We expected a backlash uh, about the number of women on boards, even though it's still 28.5%, not 50%. We expected a backlash. I don't think we expected that. And I don't think we expected to see the gender lens applied in our business newspapers. You expected in in the tabloids, um, but it was actually in the pages of the business media where what Catherine wore, what she did or didn't do with her children, those sorts of issues that you wouldn't see applied to a man. When HIH or Centro had their problems... They were both all male boards. Did anybody talk about the men's suits or their aftershave or... The, or how it, much time they spent having dinner with their kids? No. no. It or was extraordinary. did they um, ask questions about whether they'd, the problem was that they weren't promoted on merit? Yeah. Because I heard a lot of that talk. Oh, you see, that we've promoted these women be, She's because they're track. a woman, they're not, they haven't got any merit. You never hear that when no. men completely stuff up. No. And the, the backlash has been quiet before that. So headhunters would report to me that these are female headhunters that they could no longer even raise a, a small smile when a man would walk into their office seeking board roles saying, do you think I shouldn't wear a skirt? I have more chance of getting a board role. And so they've been reporting to us that there's been this, women are getting fast-tracked, they're not getting there on merit uh, for some time. And I think what the AMP issues did was to allow that to explode. And some journalists, and unfortunately not all of them male journalists, no, indeed. Uh, allowed that to uh, to run and to run. And it took sensible people, Jennifer Hewitt, for example, Fran, Fran Kelly and the like, to start to put it back into perspective. And I think it's not overt anymore, but I wouldn't want to say it's gone away. No. Have you faced... In your very long and varied career and very successful career, overt sexism, what's been the barriers and the difficulties that have gotten in your way? I guess I was at the start of a wave, which when I was in BP, for example, I was the second most senior woman, mm. but I wasn't very senior. Uh, I was the first woman in the Victorian Public Service to run a government department. Um, and so I was one of very few, and I was probably obvious, uh, I remember being at a National Australia Bank Christmas party because they were the city of Melbourne's bankers and the then chairman said, good evening, Elizabeth and gentlemen. And then I realised in this cocktail party, I was their only female guest. This is 20 years ago. And that wasn't that unusual. And I think that probably ironically helped that there were so few. Uh, and now that the numbers are more, perhaps that has fueled the backlash, people realising it's not just one or two, it's actually, I don't want to call it a wave because I don't think it's got that much momentum yet because if you look in our executive ranks, they're still pretty thin of women. But there's now a large pool of educated, skilled women looking for senior executive roles and board roles and they can't be ignored. When I was coming through, 
the numbers were fairly small. So the, they'd opened the door a crack just wide enough to let one or two women through. Yes. And now those women are leaning against the wall and the door and forcing it wider. They are. Yes, they are. And they're coming out of almost every faculty in at least equal numbers to the men. Um, I, I believe uh, we now have 100 female university students to every 80 male university I'm students. sure that's right. The only faculty I'm aware of where it's not the case is engineering, but elsewhere it's, uh, you know, even I did law in the 80s and even then it was 50-50. Mm-hmm. And so there's no longer the excuse that we can't find the women, which was there for a while. A long time, as mm-hmm. I recall. When you um, look back and, you know, perish the thought I'm saying this is, you know, decades, but I suppose, you know. It is decades. It is, it is. Um, what do you think you would say to yourself when when you were setting off in your professional life? Are there some sort of things that you'd, you'd think, hmm, I would have appreciated knowing that, understanding that when I started out? I think I would have been probably a, a bit more patient than, than I was. Um, I have a fairly low threshold of boredom and that explains taking on a number of jobs, perhaps before I'd finished another one. I think that um, I might have uh, spent, I wouldn't have spent more time in the school tuck shop because that is not my forte, but I might have uh, spent uh, more time on school activities. I don't mean with my daughter, we, I think we got that balance right, but uh, you know, activities at school that I was always too busy mm-hmm. to, uh, to do. And probably uh, to Jane's point about work-life balance, um, probably a bit more time uh, relaxing than thinking about the next day and getting ready for the next day. Did, but that's sometimes hard. You talked about yourself as the only woman. Welcome, Elizabeth and gentlemen. Uh, that means, yes, it's terrific, you're not such a threat, but you're very obvious and therefore you've got a lot to prove and every time you have a success you're carrying your entire gender in a way and its reputation on your back and every time you have a failure. So I can understand that Mm. very hard to have that uh, relaxation time when you're the only one. And when you're at the interface between, uh, say, the the public sector and the media, which some of my jobs were, I remember when I was appointed to run the Attorney General's Department in Victoria, uh, I already had my law degree, but the President of the Upper House who was from a different party from the one that appointed me, said it was the first time a non-lawyer had run the Attorney General's Department, didn't do his research because I had a law degree. Never call myself a lawyer because I haven't practised, but have a law degree. So I was not only obvious as the first woman to run the department, but the judges in particular had a level of suspicion about this non-lawyer. They didn't do their work either. So most meetings, especially with the chiefs, would start with, now I need to tell you about the law to which I would say, Your Honour, I have a law degree. And then the conversation changed. So you're in that middle of the media spotlight, spotlight being one of a few women and that interchange in the public sector, which was, you know, an interesting time in terms of public policy but also social change. Mm. You remind me when you tell that story uh, that it's still going on and that Emma Alberici, who was the chief mm. uh, economics writer, was accused of having an arts degree and not knowing what she was talking about. And mm. she kept coming back and saying, no, I have an economics degree. I have a commerce degree. But if somebody says it a few times, then yeah. it must be a fact, yeah. whether, it's, whether it's true or not. And I think it's probably even harder now with social media. Yeah. Something goes out and goes viral and the ability to correct it is almost non-existent. Mm. So, Elizabeth, are you an optimist? 
at heart? I think I'm a realist. Um, I think that there are a number of things about where we're going that trouble me. I think there's a risk. Royal commissions are important, but I just hope we don't spend the next few years with an energy royal commission. We've got an aged care one. And I'm not sure, while they're good at shining the light on problems, I'm not sure they're the mechanism for real social change. And I just wonder, looking back at how many Royal Commission reports sit on bookshelves without a lot of real change. And I know Sexual Abuse Royal Commission has led to the apology recently. It's led to compensation scheme and the like. But that doesn't mean sexual abuse is finished. And in fact, one of the women on our council said that 75% of abuse happens in homes, not in institutions. And so we've dealt really with only a small part of it. That's not to argue for a Royal Commission into home sexual abuse, but some of these issues that we face I think are not solved by setting up expensive Royal Commissions. I think we need other ways of dealing with them. So the one thing I would say that I think that Royal Commission has achieved beyond compensation and apologies is I was approached just, I'm writing a piece about it now, by a woman who wanted to talk about sibling sexual abuse Mm, and mm, home-based. And I think what it has done is it has given permission to people to talk about all sorts of, and that will, in a funny way, continue the work of the commission without there having to be a commission. Yes, I think that's right. And and if we can do that, whether it's aged care or any other of the social issues that we face, then hopefully we can have a conversation and force legislative and social change on these issues. Fantastic. So I was thinking also, um, Royal Commissions, I do um, understand what you're saying about their limits, but it is about all sorts of mechanisms, isn't it? And I do think that the work that you've done and led um, with the Institute of Company Directors has been enormously important too. So it's having frameworks, isn't it, as well as changing attitudes and bringing people hopefully forward and, and addressing some of those deeply embedded sort of areas around gender bias, which I think you've had such a lot to do with. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for speaking. Speaking to us. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Crown, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts. 